Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio program, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. On tonight's show, just a few days before Halloween, we will delve into both the mythology and known history of witches. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Max Dashu, the founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives. Tonight, we will learn why and how Max has created the archives and how they are used. We will discuss the history and mythology of witches in folk religions, ancient and contemporary, and we will explore the pattern of persecution carried out against the European folk religions and then exported with the conquest and colonization of other areas of the world. All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Darlene Pagano. Stay with us. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. My guest for this hour is Max Dashu. Max is the founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives, an organization she founded in 1970 to document global women's history, track patterns of domination, and the experiences of women in the full spectrum of world cultures. She is internationally known for her expertise on ancient female iconography, metricultures, patriarchal systems, witch hunts, and female spheres of power. Dashu's work is followed by 161,000 readers on Facebook and thousands more on academia.edu. Max has produced two videos, Woman Shaman in 2013 and Women's Power in Global Perspective in 2008. Her book, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Culture, came out last year from Valeda Press. Her new book comes out on Halloween, Deosophy, a coloring book of goddesses, spirits, and ancestors. Welcome to the show, Max. Thank you, Darlene. Max, what else would you like to share about this introduction? That was, uh, that was pretty formal. Well, you know, a lot of what my work has been about is filling gaps, uh, especially or the huge gap that existed in my lifetime around women in history, women in culture, where are the women, but also rounding out the picture in, in many ways to a broader picture of world culture, not just Western Civ, and using images to do that. So that's what the, one, one really important part of the archive is lots and lots of slides that I took. I have like maybe 30,000 slides, and there's probably about 20,000 digital images because that's really an important way for us to teach, to learn about, to experience these cultural realities that we haven't been shown. They're not linear realities, you know. It's like seeing the image gives you a feeling of a different way of being. I do remember back in the 70s going to some of your slideshows, and you'd show up with these stacks of uh, of carousels of slides, and and we would just sit there staring at the screen uh, at images we had never imagined or heard about, much less seen before. You were quite a show and pretty revelatory. So how did you create the Suppressed Histories archives? At this point, I think I can confidently refer to this as your life's work still ongoing. Yeah. Give us a whirlwind history of this uh, it's 47 years, this resource. Yeah, really 48 this fall. I, I, I was in college. There was no women's studies. Women's history was literally a joke. I left. I became an independent scholar. I started reading everything I could to try and find out if there was any place on the planet where women were free. <laughs> and studying indigenous history and the history of empires and a lot of different angles to that. And then I was, I got, I fell into the, the image teaching thing because I was working with Donna Deitch, who was at that point at UCLA film, film School. And, you know, she wrote the filmmaker that did Desert Hearts. And so we went around Southern California to all the colleges taking slides. 
and we were going to film them for this. She was making one of the first doc, feminist documentaries. And so I wound up with about 300 slides that were like seedlings. And I never in a million years would have thought about doing slideshows. It sounded, I don't know, creaky to me or something. And yet when I experienced the power of showing images to women, you know, and it was like most of what I did at that time was was women audiences, and seeing the reaction women had, the really gut level, this is completely different than anything I've ever seen before. Why don't we know about this? You know, there, there was just like, there was a lot of... Uh, revelatory um, realizations that went on for people and a lot of really amazing conversations. And so then I just continued with that, expanding it in various ways and from slideshows to videos and now I'm publishing books and there's, of course, the website. So, you know, just trying to get a different picture of who women have been, can be, out there than what we're constantly having beamed at us through the mass media, through advertising, and all of the things that we're subject to. And just all of the things that we don't know. The things we don't know, which, I mean, it's really crucial when you have those huge silences and gaps and distortions. I mean, when women's history, for a lot of people, well, you know, in when I w- went to college, if anybody thought about women's history, they would assume, well, Queen Elizabeth II first, or the suffragist, Susan B. Anthony, but it's just so much more than that, you know? And we're looking at all kinds of angles, like female spheres of power in indigenous societies, women who are builders and farmers and discoverers of technologies, you know, the ways that uh, preserving food, salting, and biochemical technologies like brewing and making uh, yogurt and butter and cheese. And and so and and warriors and and so many different things. The the medicine women has been a very large focus of my work, and this is really uh, one one aspect of the study I've done on witches and witchcraft. How do you see the archives um, being of use and available in the future? Well, in the near future, it's going to be through web pages and the image galleries that I put up and the streamable videos and the articles and essays that I make available open source online. Long range, I do envision there being a public archive that people can come and visit so they can actually look through all the file cabinets of all the maps and essays and notes and images that I've gathered over the year that are just in hard copy. They're not, you know, available online. And you know that it would be a research resource. And is it is it open to the public in any way now? Not now, not now. Only through consultation, and then, as I say, like the the material that I prepare in the form of webcasts and online courses and and streamable videos. Yes, we're going to mention all of those later uh, for our listeners. Max, thanks. Thanks for that brief history of the archives. Let's take a music break, and we're going to set the stage now for our focus on marking the celebration of Halloween.
Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. You just heard All Souls Night by Ruth Barrett. Max, I'm going to ask you to dive right in and give us the context for the celebration of Halloween versus this um, commercialized silly play event we now experience here, at least in our country uh, at this time. All Hallows Eve, the church title that was given to the older folk holidays based on Celtic holidays, at least that's one big part of it, that in Ireland and Scotland they call Samhain. And there was also a Gaulish form of this that was discovered in France in an old calendar that was engraved on bronze that they called Samonios. So you can see the relationship of those those two names, especially Samhain spelled more like Samhain. And it was the beginning of the, it was like the new year for the Celtic calendars that they started the year with the dark. Just like in, in Judaism, the day starts with the dark. And so there's some parallel there. And so it was a holiday of going into the dark, going into the time of winter, and the time of the ancestors. And so this is the connection with the spooks and all of that, that um, you're, you're dealing with, as you know, many people say now, the veil between the worlds becoming thin. You know? So there's a relationship between the living and the dead. So that's the core part of it. And particularly in Ireland, you have a lot of oral traditions and old literature, the oldest Irish literature, talks about people going to the old megalithic mounds of the elder kindreds before even the Celts were there, right? Indo-European ancestors going many thousands of years back and communing with ancestors in those places. So this is a very long historical through line. Um, Then you have um, the whole thing about, uh, well, divination was was important. Like in Scotland particularly, there were uh, divinations using yarrow, there were feasts performed for the dead, welcoming the dead to come in, the ancestors really, to come and partake of offerings that would be laid out for them. Uh, in Ireland, they had turnip lanterns, so that is the core of the jack-o'-lantern. Once you get into North America, you have the, the squash and the gourd and the pumpkin, and so they transferred this over. The European settlers transferred those customs over. Uh, and bonfires, dancing around bonfires. So, Max, on the long historical path from then to now, you started mentioning some some of the transference. There have been other celebratory holy days uh, created where we reflect on the beloved or the sacred dead. Um, I grew up with the religious holiday of All Souls Night. And as an adult, I've been in, introduced to El Dia de los Muertos. Each of them are different, yet seem related. Can you share what you've learned about this confluence of death-related observances? Yeah, well, first we have to understand that all peoples have some form of honoring of the ancestors and often of communion with the ancestors. And Mexico, in particular, is very strong on this. And it's very clear that the Aztec tradition and others in Mexico really, they had a lot of this symbolism. If you look at goddesses like Cuatlicue, and the Siwateteo, the, the symbol of the skull, is something that's very present. So they have this integration of life and death in their cosmology. And so El Dia de los Muertos is really very much tied up with native Mexican tradition. Now, I'm still trying to find out, in fact, if the date of it goes back to an old Aztec root or whether the Catholic calendar had its influence there because it was All Souls Day and then All Saints' Day following it. And so just like Tonantzin becomes La Virgen de Guadalupe, so you have this, this merging because, you know, the, the native people in Mexico are all under the rulership of, of the Catholic Spanish. You know, they're forced into a template that is not their own. And so they wind up mixing things. And so maybe that happened there. I can't really say about that around the date. Another thing you could say about the veneration of the ancestors of the dead in in Aztec culture is that there was a veneration of the Siwateteo, which means the woman spirit. And this was not just any female spirits, but it was specifically mothers who died in childbirth. And these became deified women. 
and people would do divinations with them. So you can say a little bit of similarity there to what I was saying about Scotland. Um, but they were the women of the West, and that's the direction where the dead go. And they were believed to be helpers, you know, for mothers in childbirth or for other things that humans needed to do or know. And so, you know, some of the symbolism around this, you know, uh, the serpent comes in, for example. There were actually statues of the Siwateteo that you can see in uh, museums in eastern Mexico, in Veracruz, that uh, the women are shown in the position, the stance of a dead woman. Their mouth is open, their eyes are closed, and they have serpents on their heads and wrapped around their waists. Before we go to our next segment and have another musical selection, I want to let you listeners know that my guest Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archives and I have pre-recorded the show because of Max's travel schedule, so there won't be any call-ins tonight. But please visit the Full Circle website at kpfaapprentice.org to check out links that will lead you to further resources on this work and topic. And now, some music. back to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. You just heard Trolla Bunden by Elvor Palsdotter. I am your host, Darlene Pagano, with my guest, Max Dashu of the Suppressed Histories Archives. Max, can we just take a moment and have you tell us about the song we just heard? Um, what language and what culture is that from? That's a Norse language. It's uh, related to... Uh, Norwegian and Icelandic, which the islands there are between those two places. It's way up north of Scotland and, and west of Scotland. And it gives you a little bit of a taste of what the old heathen cultures in Scandinavia might have been like, what the the prophetic priestesses that are called the Völer might have sounded like in their incantations. Well, it is extraordinary, and I'm glad you brought it to the show. We are now going to go into what I think of as the grim part of this history, the persecution of witches. Uh, Max, please um, take your time and guide us through that. Well, it's a long story, over a thousand years, and we can go all the way back to the great first witch hunt that happened in Roman times, persecution of what they called the Bacchanals, but basically were Southern Italian and mixed ethnic group people, lots of mostly women, who were doing ecstatic dance and ceremony. And it was not under control of the patrician state, and they went after him, killed a bunch of people. Um, 
a lot of the accusations that they made foreshadowed what happened much later in Europe. But what you see happen is that the Roman Empire, which is a strong force of domination in the world at that time, becomes Christianized, and they begin a process of authoritarian uh, repression of all other religious and ethnic groups uh, in under the Roman Empire and then following it in the early Middle Ages through an alliance of the church and state. So there are witch hunting laws on the books. We have examples of them from the 600s, 700s, through the 900s, going on in, in, into the, through the, into the Middle Ages. And uh, then you start to have, uh, you have the rise of the Inquisition and the demonologies that become associated with that, a lot of fantasies about uh, women's sorcery that were based on actual folk practice at first. They were actually describing ceremonies that women did, chanting over herbs and things like that that we know from you know what I talk about in my book that, that were being done. But they're demonizing it all. And both the bishops and the inquisitors are interpreting all of this as devil worship. And this becomes a really important concept in the witch hunts and later as we'll probably get into. And so you have this rise of witch trials that really begin to increase in the 1300s. And then they accelerate through the 1400s with the inquisitorial trials and it spills over into secular trials so that the Protestants begin doing this also in the 1500s, 1600s. And it spreads to countries in the 1700s that hadn't really been hit yet, places like Poland and Hungary. And so you don't have the last recorded witch execution is in 1782 in Switzerland. And there are examples from the early 1700s in Savoie, in Scotland, in Hungary, and other places. So it's a long span of really strong persecutory culture and that have clearly affected women disproportionately. Most estimates say about 80% average were female. And so you can see that there's a 20% there that were not. And there are all kinds of patterns that I've been studying for a long time about who was targeted. You know, So you've got um, the attack on female mobility, female professions, women's ability to speak especially being very contested and at the same time that burning at the stake is going on, these, these, these crazes and these torture trials are happening. There are associated phenomena that are the silencing of women again, for example, the witch's bridle, which was also called the scold's bridle. And so this would be like an implement that would be fastened over your head. It was really a head cage with a gag. And sometimes it had a, spikes in it to hold your tongue down so that you know she would be injured by this, or a vice that would screw itself over your skull. And so um, there's a lot of these kinds of practices. There's witch pricking and searching for devil marks so that uh, male practitioners would, you know, these are basically witch finders going from town to town and sending a crier and saying, I'm going to find your witches for you. And then they would gather a bunch of female suspects and rough them up, you know, search under their clothes, probing their private parts, you know, and saying this one, this one, this one, and then they would be tried and hanged or burned, depending on where you are. So there's a way in which this process going on over centuries and centuries and centuries embedded fear in the female populace, which was what it was intended to do. It was intended to um, cause women to conform, you know, to submit, to go along with the program. And you know, it's, it, uh, it had a big effect in that way. Um, but there's another aspect to all of this, too, because in those torture trials, there are these um, diabolist pornographies, by which I'm, diabolist is a way of saying the accusation of devil worship and the projection on these women, some of whom really were herbalists or seers or whatever the, you know, the, the folk witch practices were, but most of whom were simply being persecuted for being female, for being poor, for being old, disabled, all of those things. And so they were forced to parrot back the demonological fantasies of their jailers, of their judges, of the theologians. 
that you know there was a mythology of witch persecution that arose. And this mythology was not only a sexist one, it was also a racialized one. And so you have the black devils and the fantasy of witches having sex with devils, you know, or being raped by them and being forced to say back to their persecutor what the devils had done to them. And the torture didn't stop until they said what was desired from them. So there's all kinds of scripts here that get embedded in European culture around sexuality, around racialization, around what women are, who women are, you know, that women are some inferior group who are especially uh, susceptible to diabolical influence. And so um, those, those scripts then have an effect on the rest of the world, not just inside Europe. You know, I just realized there's a place that we should go back to. You and I, um, pl- you know, planned this program around witches, and we started speaking about witches as we understood the term to be. But let's let's go back and talk about what is that term, where did it come from, um, and what is the is the word nomenclature about that? Yeah, you know, that's a really important question because there, you know, there's a very demonized idea of what the witch is that comes from this process, you know, and over a millennium of propaganda saying witches are evil women, they harm people, they serve devils, all that. So my purpose in researching this book, I mean, I wanted to be able to document the repression. It's important to know about that. But really I wanted to know who were witches you know, what did the name witch mean? What What's its linguistic meaning? What's the source for this word? And of course, we're speaking English. So then there's an investigation to be done in all the other languages. And I was looking at Europe, but of course, you could do that globally. And so I have a whole chapter in my book, Witches and Pagans, that talks, it's called The Names of the Witch. And it, it's just really investigating the titles in the folk culture that were given to witches. You know, so in Italian, the strega, the hexen in Germany, there's a whole group of names. And I was able to discover that the vast majority of these names actually refer to psychic powers, to healing power, to uh, shamanic attributes like being able to shapeshift or go on spirit flights, women who were working with herbs, knower, seer, dreamer, all of those kinds of attributes. So they were really naming witches for powers, or maybe we could say faculties, developed faculties or gifts that they had that were recognized by their community. You know, so for example, a witch is the word that we wound up used, being used the most in English. But there's this wonderful word, libestre, in Anglo-Saxon that is from the same root as the word for life. Lib and life are related. And so you could translate that word directly as medicine woman, you know, the the original Anglo-Saxon meaning. And so it's also related to other words that Icelandic and Norwegian were used for healing herbs or that were used for medicine bundles or words that were used in Anglo-Saxon for amulets. You know, so there's a whole complex of meanings tied together has nothing to do with devils has nothing to do with harming people. It's really a complex of healing powers that are being described. And I just want to let our listeners know that uh, the book that it keeps being referred to is um, uh, came out last year by Max. It's Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100. And that's available from Valeda Press, V-E-L-E-D-A, so that's voleda.net for more information and to order. Do you have more on this before we go? Yeah, well, I was going to, I wanted to go back for a minute because when you were asking about Samhain, I did have, I don't know if you want to talk at all about the cross quarter holidays, of which that is the first. Sure. So Samhain is the first of the cross quarter holidays, which fall between the equinoxes and the solstices. So it's kind of like makes an eightfold matrix over the course of one solar year. 
And Sawen is the first, and that's, of course, the beginning of the winter holiday. And then Imolk, or as it's known in the Catholic calendar, Candlemas, is February 1st, 2nd. It kind of goes across those two days because it starts with the night. Beltane, which is better known as May Day to the English speakers and as Walpurgisnacht to the Germans, is a very important holiday. The, the opposite holiday to Samhain. And Lunasad, or Lamas in the, in the Catholic calendar, is the summer harvest festival. Thank you. Okay, I need to take a breath here. Before we go further into the uh, colonizing history of Europe in going into other cultures, let's take a moment and just enjoy some music. Max Dashu, the founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives, has been sharing with us an historical focus on witches from her work. Max, this is our last history segment coming up um, of the segments you're bringing us. So where do we go next? We've been focusing on the developments uh, in Europe, and we're now up to the point where European power moves out into the wider world. Uh, please talk about that colonizing force and its impacts. Yeah, this is important because the persecutory ideologies that were forged in the repression of pagan ethnic culture and of women and women's culture in Europe, what you could call it the internal colonization of Europe, and, and in many ways that's true when you look at feudalism and even early capitalism. Um, but, you know, the the... Spiritual leadership of women, the healers, the diviners, males as well, they're part of that older cultural pattern. And uh, all of these ideologies of persecution really made effective tools of colonization, and especially this charge of devil worship, because the accusation that the Tainos were devil worshipers, that the Africans were devil worshipers, each group that has had these, these, um, these insulting tags fastened to them. You know, this was done as a way of excusing, of um, discounting their value as humans, and a way of colonizing them, uh, something that really triggered repression. And so um, the same accusations in some case were were used. There's an example that I um, was really amazed to find because in the early Middle Ages, they used a tool called confessional manuals. So the priests would have people come in and they would interrogate them based on the questions that had been laid out in these manuals. You know, do you or any other woman honor the fates with offerings? Uh, you, do you believe that there are women who go by night with the goddess Diana? You know, or is there any woman who, blah, blah, blah. And they're asking these questions and trying to basically track down who are practicing these ways. This same approach was used in the colonization of the Chumash in Southern California. They had confessional manuals, and they went around just as they had done in Europe, destroying altars and, and shrines that were back in the, in the woods, you know, back in the, in the wild lands. And so there are parallels, very strong parallels, and that some of the patterns for the ways that Native religion has been persecuted and repressed and attacked in North America and other places were laid in Europe. And I think there's, uh, I've heard a number of Native people speak to this, that, you know, the, the medicine people were being, were among those who were being persecuted in the witch hunts. So this is, this is a, a framework uh, that we can look at both the history of Europe itself and the process of its colonization of the rest of the planet, not only from 
the standpoint of what it is they thought they were doing, but you know the the projection of their ideas onto the cultures that they were uh, invading. The idea of devil worship is a way of degrading, uh, misnaming, distorting the the spiritual traditions of other peoples. And this gets us back to that template of authoritarian religion. That there's only one right way. You have you know the authority of whatever scriptures or whatever men that are considered to be prophets, and so they in turn must must define everything that happens to everyone else, you know, and that must be imposed on other people until they too accept quote unquote the truth. There's a common phrase in the torture trials during the European witch hunts where the inquisitor is standing over a tortured woman or man and screaming at them, tell the truth, tell the truth, or just say it, say it, and just trying to force them to say what it is that, you know, the ideology demands. You know, oh yes, I gave my soul to the devil. Oh yes, you know, this we, we did harm to various people. Oh yes, I had sex with devils, all these things. There's a way that truth itself is like the ultimate casualty of this kind of deeply authoritarian enforcement, cultural enforcement. And I think we're still seeing the effects of that in a variety of ways, you know, in in the current culture, it's these legacies have never been digested. They have never really been named and laid out for us to look at. And so as a result, the culture goes on with the assumptions embedded within it of that very repression. You know, that women have no authority, no have authority to speak, certainly. You know, that you shouldn't listen to women. And we see that being acted out and even the intimidation that women should not speak. It's important for us to understand, I think, the the legacies that all this carries for us embedded in the culture. Do you have any examples of cultures meeting in ways that are not invading or or persecutory? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think persecutory culture is uh, universal at all. It's a very particular pattern that comes about as a result of systems of domination, so, you know, the first question you said, though, was about whether cultures could meet without this kind of violent repression. And it's, there's many examples of that around the world. I mean, there does not have to be the pattern of war or raiding or conquest, you know, of slavery. On, on the Suppress Histories page on Facebook, every time I seem to po- post anything about slavery or colonization, there are always people popping up out of the woodwork to say, but all societies did this. You know, we're not unique. Everybody did it. No, no, no. There are societies that never held slaves. This is, you know, there's many indigenous cultures that did not have slavery. I'm not trying to say that this is a utopian thing, that they never fought with each other. But it's a, on, a, on a level of scale and social organization, they did not have standing armies. They did not have these extremely developed military technologies that were only for the purpose of invasion. You know, they didn't have professional soldiers in that way. It's, it's, it's structurally very different. And I would say also that there are societies which really target aggression you know, as a negative trait rather than rewarding it. I mean, we just saw in the election last year how aggression and predatory behavior was rewarded and looked up to by a lot of people. They thought that was somehow a symbol of leadership. But in, you know, for example, in South Amer- some of the South American uh, Aboriginal societies, the, soci- the culture itself was very, very strongly punitive towards somebody that exhibited aggressive tendencies, someone who would grab something from somebody else or would speak harshly to them, would would experience sanctions for that. And they were not throwing them in a jail, but there was just collective pressure brought to bear. We don't like that. We don't do that. So that I think that past that we've come to is that a lot of people don't even have a sense of how different human cultures can be, have been, still are in some cases, which is why the more egalitarian societies are so important for us to take on board to understand, you know, that they have not vanished, you know, that they're still here on this planet. They have something to teach the rest of us. And, 
you know, that assumption that domination is inherent and everybody does it is so harmful. When you were talking about my question on Day of the Dead and All Souls Night, Halloween, uh, and you were talking about the gravitational pull of the church calendar to make these similar celebrations uh, happen at the same time. Do you have some other examples of assimilation that are still obvious to us or still known to us today? Yeah, oh, there's many, so many examples of that. You know, I mean, cultures tend to meld, but even under the the domination that happened with the slave trade and with the colonization of the Americas, so you have Africa and, and the Americas both in there, you have... Um, what they would call syncretism, where the Yoruba in Santeria or Lukumi, you have them bringing through their old Nigerian traditions or Angolan, whatever the the African uh, core traditions are, and they're passing under the disguise of the saints in the Catholic calendar, and not just not just the dates, but the actual names and so forth. So that Yamaya becomes La Virgen de Regla, and Ushun becomes La Caridad del Cobre. So they acquire Spanish names, you know, in that context. And the same thing happens in Haiti with the Loa and in Candomblé in Brazil, where you have a very strong persistence of African tradition. What's really interesting about it in Brazil is that initially the Inquisition was really persecuting people, particularly in the 1700s for keeping the old African ways. But the slaveholder class was basically so outnumbered by enslaved people that they were not able to repress it at the degree that they have done in North America. And so the languages, a lot of the words, the drum patterns, the deities, the ceremonies around them were able to survive very strongly. They had entire groups that that lived this out. What What's interesting about it is that ultimately the power of that cultural unity was so great that it actually succeeded in causing the colonizers, you know, the Portuguese working classes as well as the ruling classes, you know, a lot of people became converts. Some people say that that Candomblé or Umbanda is basically the informal religion of Brazil, you know, so that there was a way in which even these, these religions of dominated people, of, of oppressed people, triumphed. They prevailed and attained a prestige through just dint of really determination and passion and love and, and working to keep it alive. You know, so that's, that's, those, those are some examples of cultural blending. And now we live in such a multicultural society that there's, there's all kinds of flowing currents that are interacting with each other. Max, only because of, of uh, time constraints am I going to say stop at this point, because we must. Stopping our journey through the history of, of the witches and the oppression of women uh, in this particular way. You, the listener, do not have to stop following this story. Upcoming, we're going to be giving you a number of options to continue learning this history. Max has a full travel schedule internationally, but she also has an ongoing series of webcasts that can be subscribed to and has some upcoming local events. Max, will you share with our listeners where they can find out more of the histories, both online and locally? Yes, well, first to start with my website, which is suppresshistories.net. And if you're interested in the webcasts, I have uh, several coming up, which you can find at the events link on that site. And November 4th, I'm going to be doing a visual talk on ancient Arabian women. I found a lot of really amazing images, uh, just even in the last 10 years, some incredible rock art of invoking women, for example, there. And that's going to be at noon on November 4th. And then also, I'm going to be repeating a webcast on the witch hunts some of the, uh, covering a lot more of the stuff we were covering here on November 12th at noon. And so there were so many people that missed it the first time that wanted to see it. So we're redoing that on November 12th. So Max, please repeat the website name and folks 
Again, make sure you go to the Full Circle website at kpfaapprentice.org. All of these links are going to be there then. I know you're trying to catch them right now, and maybe you will, maybe not. We'll have them on the website. But go ahead, Max, and give your website again. Yeah, it's suppresshistories.net, and you can also find Suppress Histories archives on Facebook. A lot of action on that page. Max, as I'm looking at your book, which is in Pagans, I see that it's only one, and not number one, but it's only one of, I think, 16 books. So you have a publishing schedule planned for the next how many years? Yeah. Well, if, I, if with luck, I'll have them every, one every year. And these have been sitting in file drawers for years and years. And so now I just have to just bite the bullet and say, finish it, finish it, and get them out there. So, uh, yeah, it's a series called Secret History of the Witches. And this book, this first book is volume seven, kind of started smack in the middle because it's kind of the, some of the core information that's in there is about that moment where they're coming out of a pagan world and into the process of being Christianized. And this volume really looks a lot at some of the still existing female spiritual spheres of power that exist. And then other volumes will talk about Christianization, about the Roman patriarchy and the Roman church, about feudalism and slavery in in Europe before we get even to the period of the European conquests. And we're going to be talking about the Inquisition, the Crusades, a lot of different historical dynamics. But what does it look like if you put women at the center and looking at the history of the common people as part of that? And then later on, going through talking about the sorcery charge, how that really rises in the 1300s as a tool of social repression, the mass witch hunts as they develop, and then later on colonial hunts, and finally the legacies of all of this in modern culture. So it's, it's, there's a lot of volumes, and I'm working now on volume two, which is about the Pythias and the Melissae, the priestesses of ancient Greece, but also about Greek patriarchy and Greek colonization. You know, there's this way in which misogyny and racism are intertwined. And, you know, I'm finding this all through my research, but it's coming out very clearly. And the more I look at the history of ancient Greece, I'm finding a lot of examples of it. And so we're really looking in that volume at the foundations of Western Civ and how some of these patterns of oppression go back a very long way. Well, that's exactly my next question, which is you're mentioning a lot of your research into times where texts actually exist. In the history archives, how far back can you go with any confidence that you can enter somewhat the mindset of the people of those times and places? It really depends where you are, you know, what country you're talking about. You know, if you're looking at Iraq, you can go all the way back to the beginning of the of the fourth millennium BCE. But if you're looking at Germany, then written text sources, the earliest ones we have are from, except for a few little runic things, but anything we can really decipher and read is Romans talking about Germans. So it's not their own testimony about themselves. And that's another layer of division, of separation, let's call it. So it really varies what part of Europe, if you're just looking at Europe. The Greeks have a, and the Romans have a lot of written texts so that we're able to track certain things very easily with them. Then on the other hand, if you're looking at the ethnic cultures in different parts of Europe, some of the sources, the medieval sources that I'm looking at, for example, in Witches and Pagans, the penitential books and some of these other sources tell us about folk beliefs, but it's not direct testimony from the common people. But some of this information is still around in the 17, 1800s. And so you have ethnographers going around and collecting folk stories and things. And then that's where we begin to see that some of these patterns that are described way, way back in the Middle Ages are still around centuries later, in spite of those persecutions. You know, and there's something really noble in a way about the intense conservationism of popular culture because these were, these were stories and customs that people loved you know, and their folk goddesses. They loved them. They didn't want to let them go. And so they found ways to keep them. And sometimes they would do that by changing the name to a saint's name. And other times that that goddess or that whatever the thing was, was too indigestible for the Christian system, the, the cultural boilerplate. And so it remained outside of it. 
Well, speaking of the goddesses that people love, tell us a little bit about your newest book Your that's not in your regular publishing schedule and a local event coming up about it. Yeah, I, ha- I have a coloring book now that's called Deosophy, Coloring Book of Goddesses, Spirits, and Ancestors. And so it's very, very global, and there's like 50 pages of, you know, 50 pictures of these divinities from all over. And that's just, and with information on the back of each image, background about it. So it's a little bit educational, but it's also really fun. And so we are going to have a book release party, Kum Music and Socializing, and also coloring. We're going to do an art salon on November 11th, which is a Saturday from 2.30 to 6 p.m. at Redwood Gardens in Berkeley. Again, go to either the Facebook page for Suppressed Histories to pick up that information if you didn't get it just now, or the link will also be on the KPFA Full Circle website. So here on Full Circle, we try to raise the voices of people who don't often get a chance to raise their voices. So in many cases, those are not people of European descent. But here we are having a program on Halloween, and we are definitely delving into a European history of witchcraft. I think that there's another angle of view for European cultures that would add something to the conversation. You know, not the usual stuff that is always shoved down our throats, the same stories that we're always told that are part of this white supremacist narrative of who Europeans are, have been, must be, and instead looking at ways, things that we, as those of us who are of European descent, had in common at one time with the rest of the world, including we had sweat houses. We didn't do it like the Lakota. We had, you know, the sauna. We had the Bojina in Russia. We had the Tach and Alish in Ireland. And we had the Pedras Formosas in Portugal. So there are a lot of buried treasures that are good to know about because they actually connect us. Because what we know of very clearly is the history of European invasion that divide us. You know, and there's another angle of you. I remember many, many years ago hearing a comment once that has always stuck with me that we were talking, I guess, about capitalism and its harm to indigenous peoples. And some woman was speaking and she said, you know, we were all indigenous somewhere. And it's as if European culture arose suddenly about the time of Gutenberg, or you know, maybe the the witch hunts, or maybe the written <laughs> the written manuscripts before then. But I think that it would be a wonderful program to have, which is what were the indigenous people of Europe, and then in the course of that story of the indigenous people, it suddenly, well, maybe not suddenly, but it arising in the consciousness of the white people of Europe, of whom we are the descendants, realizing it's like, (laughs) that was us. We were once the indigenous people. I mean, we are still in many places, in many ways. I mean, let's think about the word indigenous. It does not have to mean people of a certain limited um, technology or... um, or even yeah. a highly developed one, you know. Yes, so that's the, true. The, the agronomies and everything. Right. Yeah. I've heard a lot of indigenous people make this point about Europe. You know, it's like everybody has indigenous roots. It's and, and so the question goes back to how did Europe come so entangled in this culture of domination and also of technologization, of capitalism, of intense patriarchy, which to me underlies the foundation of all of that. You can't really have capitalism without patriarchy, which grows up in the feudal period. And how all that conspires basically to turn European cultures into systems of domination. But, you know, we have other birthrights. And so, you know, I think it's like there's this way in which we need to both disidentify with the culture of oppression that you know, even just the whole whiteness, the whiteness. I mean, we have to have responsibility. We have to assume accountability for 
all of the dynamics that are playing themselves out now because this is a racialized caste system, and yet at the same time to disidentify from that system in the sense that we put our eggs in other baskets, you know, that we act as allies instead of as oppressors. Thank you so much for sharing your time and incredible body of research, Max. Any last words? Well, just that it's really important for us to do this work of cultural recovery. I think we need it. We need it to overcome the toxic cultural programs that are so deeply embedded. We need it for inspiration. And that's what I'm trying to do with this work. Wonderful, Max. And one more time, we have links to what has been mentioned here tonight and the music we've heard on our Full Circle website, and that is kpfaapprentice.org, kpfaapprentice, one word, dot org. This show and many others are archived there. That is also the website where you can find out more about the First Voice Apprenticeship Program and apply for this amazing opportunity to learn radio production and broadcast skills in partnership with this station. All that is on kpfaapprentice.org. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week to Full Circle. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host this evening, Darlene Pagano. And special thanks to our tech assistants from our newest apprenticeship group. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.